All right, isn't that cool? I love that. It's got two of my favorite things, which is stop motion animation and Legos put together. So that's a really, really neat video. Good job, communications team. Thank you for putting that together for us. And of course, there's also the point of the video, which is we could use more help in our Kid Connection area. So if you want to sign up for that, go to efree.org slash kids. There's one other thing I just thought of, which is kind of the elephant in the room, and that is that you can see we've got these two big set pieces here now. This is just a permanent part of our look now for the stage. It's kind of a steampunk look we're going for. Now, we're actually making some improvements to our screens. You might remember at the beginning of the year we talked about this. We're going to have new screens in place here, and so we're getting ready to have those installed in a couple of weeks. Um, They're a little bit bigger. It's going to make it easier for people in the back to see everything, and the words will be nice and crisp. There are new projectors going to be a part of that, new screens, and it'll be bigger. Um, It'll also be like the widescreen format, so we won't have to redo everything for the 4x3 format, which will be nice. And then also for people in the balcony, it's going to be so much easier to see what is up there. And then the new sound system is going to be put in soon as well. We don't have a definite date on that yet, but it's all in the pipeline going to happen. And for some of you, perhaps the biggest thing of all, new carpet, new unstained carpet will be going throughout the the facility. So we're still, we've hit a few bumps on that, but it's all, it's all in the works. So we look forward to getting that in place. For the time being, our tech productions team created this awesome temporary screen up there using one of our old screens. So thank you guys for making all that happen so that you can see everything and all of the, all the notes for the service and all that stuff. Well, the question I want to ask you about today is if you've, ever, if you've ever faced a decision, or maybe you're facing one right now, that is one where you'd really like some extra insight on, where maybe you'd even like to know um, which one should I choose or what, what's the outcome of this going to be? Maybe for you, it's a new job that you're looking at. Uh, maybe it has to do with what school you're going to go to next year, or uh, maybe it's what you're going to do with your kids this year, whether or not you're going to keep them in public school or homeschool or private school or what you're going to do there. That's been a topic of conversation at our house a lot. We have all these questions, and I'll bet that there are times when you wish you could just sort of peek ahead and go, okay, if I make this choice, what is this going to do? If I make this choice, what is this going to do? I used to read these books when I was a kid called Choose Your Own Adventure Books. Has anybody read those? You know what I'm talking about? The Choose Your Own? I love those things. And you'd read a few pages, and you'd get introduced to some characters with a problem, and then you'd come to a decision page where you got to choose what the characters did next in the book. Isn't that cool? And then you'd make a choice, and it would tell you which page to turn to based on your choice. And then you'd turn to that page, and you'd read some more pages until you'd come to another decision page. And this would go on in the book, and you'd have all these different paths that you could follow, and there were lots of different endings you could end up at. And I remember one book in particular. I'm pretty sure it had a medieval theme. It was like traveling back in time, knights and castles and all that kind of stuff. And every path I took, every ending I got to, even if I backtracked and chose a different option, every single one ended in my death. And I was like, how, how on earth is this possible? I could not find the right ending to this, and it just made no sense to me. I'd choose what I thought was the right option, the safe option, or, or the one that was a risk but was worth it, and I'd go back and try a different one, and every single one I got killed by a dragon, or I got, you know, killed by a knight, or I fell off a cliff, or every time, it was so frustrating to me that eventually I took that book and I just went, where's the right one? just flipped through the thing. You know how you can do with your thumb? Just flipped through it, found the right ending so I could try to trace my way. What decisions did I have to make to get to that one? Because that's the only one out of the, you know, 15 possible endings where I don't die. That's the one I want to find. Don't you wish life could be like that sometimes? Where you could just peek ahead and go like, okay, where's the outcome I want here? How do I get to that? 
How do I get to that place? I wish I knew what was next for me. I wish I knew on this decision page which was the right one that I'm supposed to make that's going to have the better future for me. And God knows that. So I want God to tell me that. And as Christians, we have a phrase that we use for this, which is I want to know God's will for my life, right? I want to know God's will. And we can use this very specifically. We might talk about the job that we want or the house that we might buy or a car that we might buy. We want to know what God's will is. If God knows the best choice, then why can't we just get that from him and know which one to do? And that's the one we go and do. Anybody, can anybody relate to that this morning? Like, man, I've got a decision where I would love to know what does God want me to do here? We're in the book of Colossians. And we're going to study this for, for a while now. And Paul wrote this letter to the believers in Colossae who were facing some difficult challenges. And, and those challenges actually boiled down to choices that they had to make. And in their case, it was choices that they would make about how they would please God with their lives. They were asking, how can we best please God with our lives? And there were people that were coming into the church and influencing them and saying, it's not just about following Jesus and it's not just about faith in Jesus, but there's extra stuff you have to do. Extra rituals, extra traditions, activities, rules that you have to follow in addition to your relationship with Jesus Christ. And this is what you need to follow. Some of these came from pagan religions probably. And so as those get morphed into Christianity, we call that syncretism. Some of these came from Judaism. And so you had people that were called Judaizers who would come into a new church like in Colossae and say, yeah, Jesus is great. It's great that you're following him, uh, but you still have to follow all of the Jewish stuff. All of the old Mosaic law, all that stuff still applies about Sabbath and festivals and other rituals and customs. In fact, there was even some worship of angels that was coming in from somewhere. And there was actually a sect of Judaism that got into that. So maybe that is how that got in there. But Paul's going to talk about all these issues later on in this book, in this letter to the Colossians. And so this created some difficult choices for these people. What are we supposed to follow? What does God actually want us to do? And Paul is going to talk about those specific issues, but before he does that, he's going to kind of deal with the the root cause of the problem. And he's going to do that through a prayer. He's going to share his prayer for them. Now, last week we looked at his prayer of thanksgiving for them. What are they doing right? Today we're going to look at his prayer for the future for them. What does he want for them in the future? What is going to help them deal with these issues? Now, I'll just tell you right up front, this prayer, which goes from Colossians 1.9 through 1.12, so if you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians 1. Uh, this prayer that goes for those verses, we're actually only going to cover two verses of it, but this prayer is like a blueprint for spiritual growth. So we're going to see by the time we're done sort of a pattern for spiritual growth that Paul thinks is foundational for understanding how to do all the other stuff he's going to tell them. This happens right up front. This is what he wants for them more than anything. So let's just read these two verses right now, and then we're going to pray and ask God for wisdom and then study it together. So Colossians 1.9 says, So we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? And to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will honor and will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit, all the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Let's pause right there and just go before God and ask him for his wisdom as we study this. Lord, as we dive into your word this morning, I pray that you would um, communicate to us through your Holy Spirit. Help us to learn it and understand it. You promised that your Holy Spirit would teach us all things and remind us of what you taught us. And so as we're studying what you have taught, Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the wisdom to apply it to our lives. Help us to understand how to take this and use this so that we can live in a way that pleases you, God. 
Help us to have the kind of relationship with you where we're sensitive to what you're trying to do in our lives and how you're trying to teach us, Lord, to make wise decisions that honor and glorify you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I mentioned what Paul is doing here is dealing with the root problem that the Colossians were facing. They had all these different issues that were creeping in, and Paul's gonna go right to the root cause, not the symptom. Now, we, a lot of times, tend to treat the symptoms before we actually deal with the problem, right? And this happens a lot with, with me, with, uh, with something that I might be experiencing. Like, if I'm having pain somewhere, I might just take pain pills, right? Instead of trying to figure out what's actually wrong. If you've ever experienced something like this, where you've got, like, chronic headaches or something, and you just, just keep popping pills to get rid of them, but there's actually a major issue that you need to go get checked out. Some of you know what I'm talking about. More than men than the women, probably. We tend to be a little more stubborn about getting to the doctor and dealing with things that we should. We treat the symptoms instead of the root cause of the problem, and sometimes that can have disastrous effects. We can do this in our relationships with people. So when we're having a problem relationally, a lot of times our way of dealing with that is to deal with the symptom of it, and it might even be by doing something passive-aggressive or manipulative. It might be by venting about that situation to other people, so we go and gossip about it instead instead of dealing with the root cause which is to go directly to the person we have the issue with and talk with them about it and get to the bottom of it, whether it's your spouse or a friend or people at church or whatever it is. So we deal with the symptoms a lot of times and not the actual root problem. We do the same thing internally in our minds. Sometimes there's stuff in our past that continues to to haunt us and creep in, maybe in ways we don't even understand, and it it helps to explain why we do some of the things the way we do. Maybe it has to do with parents or, or friends from the past or whatever it is. And instead of dealing with the root cause of the issue, sometimes we just sort of repress that and suppress that and keep that back there, and we don't realize the fact that it's impacting us today. We try to work around it. We deal with the symptoms instead of the root cause. And of course, what we want to do there is is go to a Christian that's been trained in those things to help us work on the root cause of that issue. Go to a Christian counselor or something that can help us to identify where is this problem and how can I deal with it at the source, not just the symptoms. So the symptoms for this church in Colossae were that they were faced with all of these options to add things to their faith in Jesus that didn't actually come from Jesus. And the problem there is that even though some of these things may have seemed pretty good, the reality is that they could distract them from their actual faith in Jesus, from keeping their life centered on Christ, and they could add all these extra things and and just bog themselves down with extra spiritual-seeming things to do that don't actually enhance their relationship with Jesus at all. And so Paul is concerned about that, and he could just go through the list and say, this thing, no, angel worship, no, Sabbath, no. Festivals, no. All these different things, you know, pagan rituals, no. Like all this stuff, just no, 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 don't do it. But he wants to deal with the root issue here right at the beginning. So he's going to give them what I'll call the blueprint for spiritual growth. And the reason this is so helpful is because if you treat the actual cause of the problem and not just the symptom, then it can stop other symptoms from showing up later. So if the root cause of the problem is that these believers need to understand how to uh, identify and deal with some of this false teaching that's coming in, then if we can teach them to do that, if we can teach them to have the kind of relationship with God, the kind of wisdom, the kind of knowledge of God's will to where they understand when something is not what God would want them to do, then they don't have to ask Paul for advice. They don't have to go to someone else. They don't need an intermediary. Not that that's a bad idea, but we want them to be able, and, and we want to be able to understand God's will enough to know, is this something he wants or is this not something that he wants? So I think they're asking the right questions here. The the believers in Colossians are asking the right questions. How can we best please God with our lives? And it's just that some of the answers they were getting were not actually 
uh, were not actually good. They were a distraction from true Christianity. And we deal with the same types of problems today, don't we? Things that threaten to distract us, whether it's a spiritual issue or something that may not seem like a spiritual issue, but it can become that because it's such a distraction for us from what God actually wants us to be doing. And some of these things, some of these things we spiritualize maybe even more than we should, like which house should I buy? If you're, if you're looking at houses, you know, and some of you are out there looking at houses right now and you've got 15 different ones you've looked at and you've narrowed it down to two choices, and you might be asking yourself, which is the one God wants me to buy? Or for cars, which car should I get? Which one does God know is the best option for me? And of course, usually that means uh, which one's not going to break down, right? Which one's going to give me 100,000 miles and 10 to 15 years and is going to be the best investment? Surely that's the one God wants for me. And just as a little aside here, I'm just going to throw this out there, a little bit of a hand grenade. What if, what if God could work through the one that's going to break down in a bigger way in your life, right? Like when we say we want God's will, we mean we want the one that's going to give us the least amount of problems, but... But the reality is maybe God wants us to have the problem one so that we can learn patience, so that he can teach us whatever he wants us to have. That's just a side note. It's not in here. It's for free. Uh, but what does God want us to do in these situations? How do we find this out? Where, do we, where should I go to school? Who should I marry? These are all questions that, that do have spiritual implications for us because we want to please God with our decisions. I'm, I'm curious, actually, uh, what are some other decisions maybe that I haven't mentioned that people would want God's insight on? Which one should I choose? Can anybody just throw it out there? Just yell it out. College? A career? What's that? Marriage? Yeah. At first I thought, you, I swear, I thought you said a new church, and I was like, ooh, that's harsh. <laughs> but marriage sounds way better. What else? Any other decisions that you're like, man, I want God's insight Another kid. Yeah, that's right. When to retire. When to retire. Absolutely. We, we, we want God's insight on these things. Lord, what's best for us? What do you want for us? And, and I think we're going to see a little glimpse of insight into that today. So if you're in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will. Complete knowledge of his will. Another way to say that would be uh, to make you an expert in what God wants. So that you are an expert in what God really wants. What's going to make God happy in your life if you make these choices? And that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Complete knowledge of God's will. That's his prayer for them. And the way we face choices, a lot of times it's such a mystery to us that this seems completely unattainable, like complete knowledge of God's will. How could we even have that? Now, the false teachers in Colossae were saying that they had knowledge of God's will, they were saying, we've got some special knowledge that you don't have, that Epaphras didn't have, that Philemon didn't have, that Paul didn't have, and so we're going to bring this extra knowledge of what God wants to you, and, and you've got a choice to make now. You need to follow what we are telling you to do, because this is what God wants from you. And, and what Paul is saying when he says, we're praying that God gives you complete knowledge of his will, he's saying, we don't want you to have to go through another person to understand what God wants. And this is an important distinction, because in the church, for instance, the role of pastors and church leaders is not to be an intermediary between you and God. It's not so that you can come here on Sunday and get your spiritual food and then go the rest of the week and not do anything about your walk with Christ, and then you come back and you do it again week after week. That's not the point. We are here to facilitate, to teach, to equip, but the bottom line is your connection with God is direct. It's between you and God. It does not flow through any kind of intermediary. And so Paul wants these people to have a direct knowledge of God's will, of what will make God pleased with how they live their lives. 
But of course, then we have to ask the question, what does Paul mean by the will of God? How can we have complete knowledge of God's will? What does he mean by that? And this is a very important question. Jesus thought it was an important question. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And by the way, if the will of God has to do with what car you buy, then that's a very important decision. If your eternity in heaven depends on whether you do the will of God in that choice, that's a big deal. Uh, there's another, another verse in First um, John. John talks about this. He says that the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So John thought that understanding the will of God was important. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of God is an incredibly important thing, and we want to know the will of God. How do we understand the will of God? And let me just pause there for one minute, give you a little bit of a sidebar, because I want to be clear for anyone that, that, that may misunderstand me here. Um, I want to be very clear about this. We're not talking about doing the will of God so that we can do enough things to earn our way to heaven. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is we have already trusted in Jesus Christ, and now because we've trusted in Him, our desires are new. We want to do the will of God, but we don't always know what it is. We don't always understand what does he want us to do next? How does he want us to make these choices? And so we're not trying to do this to somehow earn salvation points to be good enough to get to heaven, but we do want to do the will of God because we have trusted in Jesus, if we have. And he is now living in us, giving us new desires. We'll talk more about that in a little bit here because we're going to go to Romans chapter 12. If you've got your Bible with you, open up to Romans chapter 12. This is going to teach us a little bit about the will of God. And then we're going to move on to Ephesians after this, and you'll kind of see it all come together. So in Romans chapter 12, Paul is explaining what the Christian life needs to look like. And this is an incredible chapter. If you've never taken time to just study this passage or read it through, later today, read Romans chapter 12. It is an awesome chapter. We're just going to hit on the first two verses today. Paul says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. Zero in on that statement right there. You do all these things, and then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So let's talk about these steps here, because obviously there's a progression in this passage, right? He starts with dedicating your body or your life to God as a living sacrifice. One version says, present your body as a living sacrifice. Now that's different than a dead sacrifice, right? And the old system was you had to bring a sacrifice that you would kill on the altar, a lamb or something like that, and it would be presented as a dead sacrifice. And he's saying, no, no, you present your bodies as a living sacrifice because of what Jesus did for you. Not so that Jesus will do something for you, right? Because of what Jesus did for you, your response to that should be, you are now a living sacrifice. He bought and paid for you with his blood, so your life now needs to be lived for him. That's number one. Dedicate your body and your life to God. And by the way, he says, this is what real worship is. This is true worship. A lot of times we think of worship as being music. And we, and we use the term synonymously. When we talk about worship, we're often talking about singing songs, but the reality is, according to the Bible, worship is what we do with, with our lives. 
It's every day, every choice being lived according to God's will and not according to our will or our selfish desires, self-centeredness. And that's what worship really is. Music is certainly a part of that, but real worship is what we do tomorrow. <laughs> when, we, when we go to work or go to school or, or watch the kids or whatever we're doing, that's real worship. So the number two is to separate from the mold of the world, from the bad things of the world, to, to distance yourself from those things. Now, all the believers that Paul is writing to here, for the most part, became followers of Jesus when they were adults. They had some stuff in their past that was probably drawing them back in and, and tempting them, and so Paul wants them to not conform to those things that would be a temptation to them. And even if you trusted Jesus as a young kid, there's still going to be elements of the world that are appealing to you and attractive to you. And so Paul is saying, don't conform to that. So, so dedicate your life to God. Don't conform to the things of the world. Then let God transform your mind. One version says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed or let God transform you. The idea here is that the transformation is not actually done by you. The transformation happens because of what God does to you and in you, not what you are doing, but you are an active participant in it. it there, there are two parties active in this sentence here. One is you letting it happen. The other is God doing it to you. And so that's why this version says, let God transform your mind. Another version says, be transformed. That be part means you've got to be a, a part of this. But God is the one that's actually going to do the transformation. He's going to renew our mind. He's going to transform the way we think. And why does he do that? So that you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so that's number four. You will learn to know God's will. Now, what's interesting about this whole progression here about God's will is that nowhere in here does Paul say anything about figuring out what God's will is for the specific decisions of your life. He doesn't say anything here about finding out which house you're supposed to buy or where you're supposed to move to or what chariot you're supposed to get. None of that. That's not what Paul has in mind when he says the will of God. All of that is missing. So what does he mean? What is he thinking about when he says understand the will of God or here you will learn to know God's will for you which is good and pleasing and perfect. If you read the rest of Romans 12 you will see that it is filled with principles for how to live. All kinds of them. You can just skim it there. Uh, don't just pretend to love people. Really love them. Hold on to things that are good. Show honor to each other. Don't be lazy. Be patient. Keep on praying. Help other people. Show hospitality. Live in harmony with other believers. Don't take revenge. There's this whole big list of principles that, that Paul explains are how we're supposed to live our lives. But it's not specific information of this choice or that choice. It's, it's general principles. And what does he mean by this? There's another chapter in the Bible that's very similar to this. I want you to go there. It's in Ephesians chapter 5. If you'll switch over to Ephesians chapter 5 for a minute, you're going to see something very, very similar, only there's a key verse that really helps us to understand this. If you look at the first 15 or so verses here, in Ephesians chapter 5, you see things that are very similar to what we saw before. Be imitators of God. Live a life filled with love like Jesus did. Don't allow for sexual immorality, impurity, or greed. Don't say things that are obscene or foolish or inappropriate. Be thankful to God. Don't be fooled by the excuses that other people give for this type of behavior. Don't participate with people that do these sorts of things. Live as people of light. 
Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Don't engage in evil deeds, but expose them. Don't promote or gossip about people's secret sins. Be careful how you live. Don't live like a fool, but wise. Make the most of your time. And these are all principles for how God wants you to live in any situation. And then we come to verse 17, and Paul says this, don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And that phrase, understand what the Lord wants you to do, quite literally means understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't act thoughtlessly. Here's this big list of principles. Don't act thoughtlessly. Understand what the will of God is. This is what the will of God is. Both here and in Romans chapter 12, Paul is telling us about the will of God. What is the will of God? He's not talking about some secret plan for the big choices that we have to make in life that we're supposed to somehow figure out or determine. He's talking about the principles that we learn ultimately from Jesus. This is the will of God from a biblical perspective. Now, I mentioned that these principles all come back to Jesus. Let me unpack that a little bit because if you're reading the New Testament, all of the principles that are communicated there ultimately trace their way back to Jesus. You've got Jesus' followers who he taught for three years. And then before he left, he said, go find other people to make disciples and teach them everything I have taught you. Before he left, he said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to teach you all things, and he's going to remind you of the things I taught you. So he's supposed to continue this on. We're supposed to pass on these teachings. And you might even think, well, what about Paul? Paul didn't really spend that time with Jesus when he was teaching the other disciples, but so much of our teaching comes from Paul. There's an interesting passage in the letter to the Galatians where Paul wants them to know that this teaching did not come from any other human. He says, I didn't receive this from any human. I received this from Jesus himself. And he goes on to explain that for three years, he was in the desert in Arabia and then in Damascus, learning directly from Jesus Christ through special revelation to him. That's where he got his knowledge. And he says, only after that, after three years of being trained by Jesus, did I go to Jerusalem and then start my ministry and meet with the other apostles. In other words, he wants to be very clear on this. His teaching, his letters, his principles, these things, these come directly from Jesus. These do not come from another person. So there's no game of telephone here. There's no middleman where these could get messed up. He's like, this comes right from the source. So all of these principles that we have in the New Testament, these all trace their way back to Jesus. Another word for those principles is precepts. How many of you have heard the word precept before? Everybody know what that means? A precept. It's like a a command, a principle that you're supposed to follow. That's another word for a principle. These are precepts. When Paul is talking about knowing the will of God and understanding the will of God, what he's actually talking about is not which house I should buy, which school I should go to, who I should marry, which car I should get. He's actually talking about understanding and knowing the precepts of God. That is God's will for us. In fact, in in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul said, God's will is for you to be holy. That's God's will. Paul never says God's will has to do with anything other than the precepts of God that we are supposed to know and live by. So let's talk about the will of God for a little bit. In the Bible, we see two main aspects of the will of God. Two main aspects. One is the decretive will of God. And one is the preceptive will of God. I know it feels like we just slipped into seminary here a little bit. If you'll indulge me for a minute, though, I think it will be helpful. The decretive will of God are those things that God says, I'm going to do it, and it's going to get done. And when God says, I'm going to send a flood, he sends a flood. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. He decrees it, and then he does it. That is the decretive will of God. And sometimes in the Bible, we will see something described that happened that God did, and it will say that was the will of God. 
that that should happen, and that's why it happened. That's the decretive will of God. There's another aspect of the will of God that we find, especially in the New Testament, especially in these letters, the way that Paul talks about the will of God and Jesus and John, the way they talk about the will of God, they're often referring to the preceptive will of God. And the preceptive will of God are those precepts that God gives for how he wants people to live their lives. It's his will for it. But unlike the decretive will of God, with the preceptive will of God, he doesn't force it all to happen. Otherwise, we'd all be perfect. So the preceptive will of God are those things that he wants to happen, that please him, that glorify him, that honor him, that make him happy. But he does not force it to take place. They're precepts that he gives us. Now, in the Old Testament, with the Jewish people, the preceptive will of God was given to them in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Laws. And some of those were specific to their customs and culture and time period that they were in. In the New Testament, Jesus brings what? A new covenant with revised precepts. And some of the precepts that were relevant to the Israelites in the Old Testament are no longer relevant anymore. Some of the rules about food and special days and things like that are no longer, longer a part of that new covenant that Jesus brings. Some of the precepts Jesus raises the bar on. So Jesus says, you have heard that that, it's, uh, that the law says it's wrong to murder. I tell you, if you hate someone in your heart, it's the same as if you've murdered them. You, you know the law says, the old law says that if you commit adultery, it's wrong. Well, I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully, it's as if you've committed adultery. So Jesus raises the bar with some of these precepts that he gives. And all of this helps us to understand a more biblical way to approach decision-making. Because that's really what we're talking about here. Usually when we talk about the will of God for you and me, a lot of times we're actually talking about we have a choice to make, we have a decision to make, we want to know what's the right one, what's the one God wants for us to have. And this helps us to make wise decisions because sometimes we face paralysis of choice. You ever, you ever get that? Where you're looking at all the different options and you're like, ah, which one do I choose? I don't even know. And you might pray and ask God, you know, like, Lord, if I wake up tomorrow and this one's on sale, then clearly that's the right one, Right? Like, would you just, I'm just going to put this out there, God, and whatever this, you know, you make your parameters for whatever it is, and that's the one that God must want me to have. We do goofy stuff like that that's really not, not instructed for us in the Bible, and ultimately we can end up with such paralysis of choice that the stress of the choices that we're trying to know what God wants for us actually ends up distracting us from living the life God wants for us. You can become so stressed with the choice that you have to make that you don't treat people around you or treat your family the way that God wants you to treat them. And you become so distracted that your prayers become consumed with whatever this thing is that you're trying to make a choice about instead of all the things that the Bible tells you you're actually supposed to be praying about. We can become distracted from living the life that God wants us to, the life that's within his will, by trying to find his will for some choice that he hasn't actually told us that's what you're supposed to do. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that God cannot and does not speak into specific choices at times. He certainly does. We'll see more about that in a minute. But we have to understand that being preoccupied with finding God's will for choices in our life sometimes actually distracts us from living the life God wants us to have. So let's ask the question, how do we make good choices that honor God? How do we make choices that are within God's will? How do we have that complete knowledge of God's will? One of the things that I need to cover before we go any further is this idea. I mentioned earlier what some would call the fleece, right? When I said, um, God, if I wake up tomorrow and this is on sale, then clearly that's the one you want me to have. Uh, When we make those kind of um, 
bartering relationships with God where it's like, Lord, all right, if you do this, then I know it's this one you're going to, we sort of put it out there for God and sort of put him into a, a, a corner, trap him into a corner, like, okay, God, you got to give me the direction this way. That's not a biblical way to approach choices. Here's another way that's not really a biblical way to approach choices, and, and I may step on some toes here, but stick with me, okay? I just don't have a piece about it. Or I was going to make a decision, and I prayed about it, and I had a piece about this one, and so that's the one God wants me to do. And I hate to burst bubbles out there, but you will not find a single verse in Scripture that backs that concept up. There is nothing in there. I don't even know how this became a part of our vernacular as Christians that we're somehow supposed to have a peace about whatever God wants us to do. Jonah had no peace about going to Nineveh. None. Many times God instructs us or calls us to do things that we don't have a lot of peace about. There's nowhere in the Bible that says whatever God wants you to do, you're going to have a peace about that thing. Now, now stick with me because I'm not saying we totally ignore that feeling. That can be an important feeling and we can, we can get into that. But that's not a biblical way to make choices. The, the peace thing can come into play when we find that we're making a choice between something and we're almost going this way and suddenly we just get this feeling of discontent about it and unsettledness and that absolutely could be the Holy Spirit telling you look closer, dig deeper, find out what's going on here. And I'm, I'm gonna talk about that more in a, a little bit but before we get there, let me give you some steps to determining God's will. You ready for this? I've got, I think it's five. Let me double check. Five steps for determining God's will. The first one is determine if there is a clear biblical precept about this. Has God already given specific information? If the choice is to take a bribe or not, you know what God's will is. If the choice is to take revenge or not, to lie or not, to steal or not, to gossip or not, you know what God's will is in those situations. He's made it abundantly clear. There is an easy answer to this, and it comes from the precepts of Jesus. And then what we need to do, of course, is we need to learn and absorb the precepts of Jesus so that as we go through life, we can apply those precepts to our life. That's number one. Determine if there's a clear biblical precept about this. Number two, pray and ask God for wisdom. Now, some of you might wonder, why isn't this first? Shouldn't prayer be first? Well, because if you're making a choice between something that's within God's precepts and outside of God's precepts, do you really have to pray about it? Do you have to pray if something's clearly wrong? No, you just know, all right, that's not within God's will. He does not want me to do something that's clearly against his precepts. But James 1.5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all. God wants us to ask him for wisdom. He wants us to pray about these decisions. But notice that the prayer request is not, God, tell me what to do. That's very interesting to me. James doesn't say, if anyone's lacking wisdom and struggling with a certain choice that you have to make, ask God to tell you what to do. He says, ask God for wisdom. That's really interesting to me, that we're supposed to be asking God for wisdom so that we can make a wise choice, not just giving us the answer automatically. That's the thing that we are supposed to pray for so that we can make a wise choice. Let's keep going. Uh, Number three, consider indirect precepts. Then you consider indirect precepts. If there's no obvious precept that applies to a decision, there could be a deeper connection to a precept. And this is where those feelings of discomfort can come in. This is where the Holy Spirit might be prompting you to say, yeah, this doesn't exactly violate a precept, but if you dig a little deeper, it starts to, doesn't it? Let me give you an example, because I know this could, could be confusing if I don't. 
So let's say that you're choosing between two cars, and both cars are fairly practical. Both cars are within your budget. You can afford both of these. Neither of these are directly in violation of any kind of precept. You don't have to do anything bad to get one of these cars, but you have two cars to get. One of them looks a whole lot nicer than the other. One of them is a lot flashier than the other, but either of these will will do the job for you. And so you examine the precepts that you know, and you're trying to decide, should I get this car? Should I get this car? I don't know. I'm not sure. So you pray about it. And you ask God for wisdom. And as you're asking God for wisdom, right as you finish, you start to think of something that you hadn't thought of before. This is how God works so many times. You start to realize something. You go, wait a minute. I wonder if the reason I'm so drawn to this car, which is a lot more money, but looks a whole lot nicer. I can afford it, but it's a whole lot nicer. I wonder if the reason I'm drawn to this car is because of my pride. You see what I mean? That's not a direct connection to a precept immediately, but it's an indirect connection to a precept where you're going, you know what? Actually, I think the root motivation for me to pursue this car is because I want people to see me in that car and go, whoa, he's got something going on. Like, wow, that is, that is pretty awesome. Boy, I like that guy. That's cool. Like, I want people to look at me that way. And so it's my ego and it's my pride. And the Holy Spirit can reveal stuff to us like that. As we're making decisions, that's the wisdom that God provides. And then we still have a choice to make where we say, that would probably violate a precept because I'm doing this for the wrong reasons. Now, that's not to say, I need to clarify, that's not to say that it's wrong to have nice things or that every time you buy a nice car, there are some nice cars out there. I'm not saying all of you are prideful people, okay? Every time I see a nice car in the parking lot, I go, what a sinner. (laughs) But if you've examined your heart and you've prayed about it and there's nothing like that that bubbles up and you're like, no, it's not. It's not because of pride at all. It's because I've always wanted that car. I think it's really cool. I don't care what people think about me with it. I just, I think that's really fun to have and I can afford it. And okay, I don't have a problem with that. And some people do have a problem uh, with, with that because they say, well, you could have used the money for other things, but the reality is you're giving that money to something that's creating jobs for other people who can, that, you know, so I don't, I don't have a problem with that. That's the way, that's the way this, these things work. But you pray about it and you ask God for wisdom. And then if you're still stuck, you can ask wise Christians for advice. That's number four. Ask wise Christians for advice. Proverbs 11 says, without wise leadership, nations fall. There is safety in having many advisors. There is safety in having many advisors. Seek out wise counsel. That's what the early church did. That's why most of these letters were written because they wrote a letter to Paul and said, Paul, we're dealing with a difficult situation. Can you help us out here? And number five, you're making decisions. Number five, make a choice and be open to God's redirection. God gave us brains for a reason. He says when we ask him, we're supposed to ask him for wisdom to help make a wise choice. He never actually tells us that there's some secret path he has for us where he's got all the different choices we make mapped out and we somehow have to divine what that is where where God is uh, is like we have some kind of divining rod. We're trying to figure out like, okay, which car is it? Which house is it? Which person to marry? All these things. That's not to say he doesn't care. That's not to say he doesn't have wisdom to give you. That's not to say there aren't times when God specifically does interact and, and, and speak into those situations. He does, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But sometimes we're just supposed to make a choice and be open to God's redirection. My favorite example of this is when Paul was headed up to Bithynia. You've probably heard me say this before. And other times, Paul did not always wait and ask God for, for direction. Sometimes he just said, it seemed good to us to go to, and so they went. And one of these times, it seemed good, and they were headed up to Bithynia, and along the way, God let them get part of the way, and then he stopped them and said, actually, I don't want you to go there. I want you to go over here instead. And what we learn from that is Paul did not expect for God to give him some sort of a clear message on all the decisions he was going to make. It was a big deal to move the whole crew up to Bithynia for a while. 
That was a big decision. Where do we go next with the gospel? That's a big decision. And Paul said, let's go up there. And God let him get part of the way and then said, no, let's, let's not. So make a choice and be open to God's redirection. Proverbs 16, 9 says, we can make our plans. Nothing wrong with that. But the Lord determines our steps. The Lord determines our steps. Sometimes you will find as you make a choice and as you pray about it and as you say, God, I am fully open to whatever you want me to do here. I think this is where you want me to go. I think it's a wise choice, but Lord, if you want to, will you close the door along the way? You will find that God answers that prayer very clearly. And you might have headed in a certain direction and God will close the door for you and give you direction after the fact. And honestly, I think sometimes that can grow our spiritual faith more than anything else. It's a process. It's a progression. It's not like a flip the switch kind of thing where God just goes, bloop, here's the answer. A lot of times, it's as we are going through the journey of life that God reveals to us kind of where he wants us to go and what he wants us to do. There's a book by Kevin DeYoung with an amazing title. It's called Just Do Something. Have you ever heard of this book? Just Do Something. And here's what he says. God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. He is a good God who gives us brains, shows us the way of obedience, and invites us to take risks for him. We know God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think he's going to tell us the wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will, pay special attention to this, such preoccupation with finding God's will, as well-intentioned as the desire may be, is more folly than freedom. Now, I told you that Colossians 1 9 and 10 address the root problem and that it's a spiritual blueprint for growth, a a blueprint for spiritual growth. So let me just wrap this up by completing that picture because if you're back in Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 9. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why do you need spiritual wisdom and understanding? So that you know how to apply that knowledge of God's will. And now we understand what Paul means by that is the precepts that are taught to us. God's preceptive will. The the principles in the New Testament in particular that come back from Jesus all the way down to us. We need wisdom and insight to know how to apply those. So the Spirit of God helps us to have that wisdom and understanding to know how to apply the precepts that God has given us. And then Paul continues in verse 10, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord. And your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. See, knowing God's will, his precepts, and having spiritual understanding and wisdom to apply them in your life leads to living a life that honors and pleases the Lord. And that ends up producing good fruit. Here's how we can look at this. Right knowledge and right understanding lead to right living and right actions. And this is a progression. This is a journey. It's not a switch that happens. You can't teleport and get there all of a sudden. God wants us to go through this process with him. And so give yourself some grace as you're facing the decisions of life. Be open to making a choice and allowing God to redirect you. Give others some grace as well. Remember, they're on a journey too. One of the biggest ways we get messed up on this is we get stuck in one part of the progression. And so we have lots of knowledge, but we don't apply it to our lives. Or we have knowledge and we can apply it, but we don't actually live it out. Or we have the knowledge and and we know how to apply it and we live it out in our life, but we're not producing fruit. 
You see how we get stuck on this spiritual growth blueprint that Paul provides for us. But at the end of this verse, in verse 10, Paul says, all the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. That brings it right back around to the beginning, doesn't it? It's knowledge of God again. He says, I want you to know God's will. I want you to have wisdom and understanding to apply it. I want you to live the right way that honors and pleases God. I want you to produce fruit. And that whole time you're going through that, you're going to get to know God even better. And we're right back to the beginning. So it almost seems like a cycle, but it's, it's not really a cycle. Because all the while you're getting to know God better and better, he says, it's actually more like a spiral. Where you're starting with knowledge of God. And then you're going into application and living it out and producing fruit and then knowing God better and we're up higher than we were before. It's a spiral of spiritual growth where we're getting closer and closer to God. That's what Paul wants us to go through. It's how we become transformed to be like him. It's how we have a renewed mind. I want to close with another passage of Scripture. And as I do this, the the band is going to come out and they're going to come up here and and we're going to sing one last song together that I think fits really well. But now that you have a a little bit of an idea of what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 12 and Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to read you a passage from Philippians. So we're just going to bounce all over the place here. But now I want you to think very carefully about the words of this letter. What does Paul mean when he's saying these things? And you're going to have some sense of this Listen carefully to these words. And I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. I pray that your love will overflow more and more, that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. That makes a lot more sense now, doesn't it? For I want you to understand, he says, what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much praise and glory to God. Can I ask you to stand and and worship God with us together and just present yourselves to God as a living sacrifice this morning?